welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. We're going to be back in our series on worship this morning. We're going to round it up. We're going to finish it off. Um, This is now the second series that we're going to be finishing off. We just finished off last week our series in Revelation. So I hope you feel a sense of completion. Um, Personally, I'm not really a finisher-completer type person. So to actually come to the end of something uh, is uh, is a big thing. So... Quick recap on what we've been thinking about in this series so far, because it's been a few weeks since we last spoke about it. We've been thinking about this thing, worship, what it is that we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings, our practice, how we actually worship, what it means, and perhaps something of the vision uh, for our church going forward as we think about worship. We began by exploring worship as story, that the Bible and that the scriptures are this wonderful tapestry of story that is being weaved by God and that our worship should really help tell that story and that as we worship and we tell that story we'll find ourselves enacting it embodying it Um, and in some ways we came to the end of that story in our revelation series the ending of the story impacts how we live today we talked about worship as participation that we can think about worship, we can talk about worship, we can theorize about it, but actually it only really makes sense when we actually do it, when we actually come to bring ourselves, bring the fullness of ourselves and actually practice worship together and bring ourselves fully to participate in that. And then last time we spoke about worship, we thought about worship as beauty. We thought about how um, perhaps in our culture, in our society, that beauty has taken a bit of a backseat in many ways, that we're now sceptical of ideas of beauty. We talked about how this has impacted the church in many ways, that now we have a kind of impoverishment of beauty sometimes in our worship, and we thought a little bit about that, and about how beauty arrests our hearts and our affections towards God, the God who created things good and beautiful and delights in that. And so today we're thinking about worship as presence. But before we really launch into the main content of today's theme, I want us to just take a pause, a moment to just consider and to meditate as we come out of a series on Revelation, quite a a hefty series, um, quite an important one, I think, if uh, you might agree with me in that. And it would be considered, it would be beneficial, I think, to consider worship in the light of that series in the book of Revelation. Because presence and worship is a big part of the vision that was handed to John by God. I wonder if you've been wondering about the image that has gone along with our series in Revelation. It hasn't really been spoken about or or talked about. Um, Credit where credit is due, it was certainly not made by me. It's based on a woodcut print by the German Renaissance artist Albrecht Dürer. Um, I just stuck some text on the top of it. yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's called The Adoration of the Lamb, part of a series of woodcuts based on the apocalypse. 
made in the late 1490s. And it depicts the scene mainly from chapter seven of Revelation. And so just as almost like a, a pause, a meditation to bridge the gap between this series of Revelation and how we think about worship. I just want to read the words from chapter seven and consider these words, consider the image. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So when you hear these words and you consider the artwork they inspired, are you not struck by the, ten, the tangible weight and gravity of God's presence? We are taken up in this image into a cloud of witness, uh, a perpetual moment of attention and reverence, an attendance to the Lamb of God by a cacophony of worshippers, man and creature joining together in a chorus of noise and rapture. And I love the, the various characters and responses present um, up at the top, I really like this guy. There's just something about the way his body is orientated towards the lamb. His focus utterly captured, his attention wrapped. All he can do is just gaze and adore and his hands are held humbly before him in a posture of reverence and respect. So this image is about worship and the passage that we read that it's based on is about worship. There is presence. Presence from those who are in attendance, but also, and most importantly, the reality of God's presence with us. We finished Revelation last week in that place where God himself comes to dwell among the nations. A city without a temple because his presence is everywhere and in all. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, God at the center. So you remember, or you may remember, you'll be forgiven if you can't remember, when we talked about worship and beauty, we considered a lament, so to speak. We considered about the idea that there's this impoverishment, perhaps, of beauty within many parts of the church. And you might remember as well, we looked at a lot of different images about things where we were considering that these things, architecture, art, are they what we would consider beautiful? And we looked, you may remember, at a picture of a church building 
And this church building was uh, from somewhere in America and it had a, a vast parking lot and it had a beige, just, it was just a box of a building with a flat roof, no windows, no ornamentation. The entrance to me looked a bit more like a fire escape. It was bland and boring and basically looked like a B&Q. And I was listening to a podcast uh, recently, and it was a conversation between a few different Christian commentators. Uh, they were based in America, and amongst the group, there was this kind of consensus with the idea that somehow the, the mystery of beauty had left uh, many expressions of worship in the church, particularly in their context in, uh, in America. And I was struck just sort of, they were talking about how um, there are all across Europe and the UK, you know, when they visit, there are all these staggering pieces of architecture, all these sacred spaces that are just physical acts of worship, the craftsmanship, the beauty, the detail, the stonework, the, the light, just the architecture and the design. And they were kind of lamenting the fact that uh, this isn't necessarily the case in their context. And I was interested, I thought, on one level, I kind of agree with where, they were, with where they were going. But something else came to mind as I was listening to this conversation. And I thought something maybe useful that could have been injected into that conversation at that, one, at that point was that, yes, places like the UK and Europe are, are almost overrun by these beautiful buildings that Christians can, can gather into worship. But many of them are also empty. Many of them are falling into disrepair and ruin, uh, being condemned and being torn down. Many of them are being bought by developers and turned into boutique hotels and music venues and restaurants. And so we were talking about beauty as this kind of ingredient in worship of a God who made creation pleasing to look at and called it good. And that the purpose of beauty in worship is to capture and arrest our affections towards God. And if that's the case, how come some of our most beautiful places of worship are also empty of the very worshippers they're designed to inspire? A beautiful but empty church. Now, the issue of church decline in, in Europe and in the West at large is a big topic, and lots of clever people have done lots of important thinking about it. And it's not really the focus of this sermon, but where worship is concerned, I think it's probably important that we sketch a little bit um, something of the development of this thing that I'll call contemporary worship. And sort of in broad, general brushstrokes, a contemporary style of worship is something that we're all familiar with because it's kind of what we do here. Uh, it's um, typically a band with uh, modern instruments and um, kind of electrification and speakers and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's, it's, it's modern sounds. It's sounds that we're familiar with through the development of music through the 20th and 21st centuries. It's lyrics that will be more familiar to a modern vernacular. And so that's kind of like what I mean by contemporary worship. And in some senses, contemporary worship, in many ways, came out of a desire to address something about worship that many found to be getting in the way of the mission of the church. And so it's kind of in, in kind of broad, crude terms that these old, beautiful churches and their traditions sometimes lack a certain something that seemed to have this effect where bums were leaving pews. And just this sort of understanding or this feeling that these traditional old styles of worship were somehow res lacking something of resonance and power. This was the kind of the thinking. 
If we really believed in a God whose presence was meant to transform lives, who's going to come up with miraculous signs and wonders. When we read about, for example, the worship of the early church and, for example, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's looking out at the church and saying, you know, there's this sort of like um, exuberance and, and sort of charisma in the worship. And it, he's almost saying, just hold on a second, just let's put a little bit of order around this because it's so, the signs and wonders and the, the Holy Spirit and just the way that, um, that people were almost worshipping was almost, it was almost too overboard. It was too far in that direction. And so... It seems that these drafty churches with artwork that nobody understood and that had these kind of monotonous liturgies read by, um, by priests who seemed to want to be somewhere else, and then there were these sort of half-hearted hymns droned by congregants who wanted to dash out the door as soon as the service ended. It's a bit of a caricature, a bit of a, a stereotype, but I wonder if you kind of can imagine that or think about it. The question is, where was the power of God's Holy Spirit breaking in during that time? Where was the conviction? Where was the belief that worshiping God was more than just turning up dutifully on a Sunday? Where was the encounter with the presence of the living God? And again, I have to stress, this is all kind of broad brush and very generalized. But even for myself as a teenager growing up, I grew up in a church that had a kind of contemporary worship style, but even in my own kind of small church setting, I was hungering for, I was listening to kind of the music of, of Hillsong and things like this, thinking like, this is it. This is what worship is. This is what it's meant to be like. So you have to be, have an element of sympathy, I think, to the heart and desire for the development of worship in this way towards this thing called contemporary worship. There was the charismatic movement, which wanted to recover the sense of power and signs and wonders when the church gathered. You had things like the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s. These were kind of legit Woodstock-going hippies who converted to Christianity, but they also then brought with them their kind of styles and molds into worship. The gospel churches, Pentecostalism, the vineyard movement, all of these movements in their own ways have had the influence to where we are today. And now we've had almost... Uh, just over perhaps a half a century of what we could call this thing culminating into contemporary worship. And there's been bumps along the way and there's been lots of problems and it's messy as with any history, but there's a lot of good as well. And I think the good is that there's this desire to want to connect deeply with God in sung worship, to experience his presence, to see his power displayed. Ultimately, a desire to be transformed, to have our lives changed and turned around, to see entire places and communities. And sometimes even that word that might get banded around a little bit too often, but very often this word revival goes around as well. And so I'm left with a question. If that's all there is to it, why at the same time does it feel in this moment like there's a kind of tiredness of contemporary worship? Why is it, do we get the sense that we might start to be feeling a little bit tired of it at the same time? If it's God's very presence we're being invited into in worship, why do we still sometimes approach with trepidation, with weariness, maybe even apathy? So when we talk about the presence of God, what do we mean? Why is it important to Christian worship? And there's a tension, I think. I think it's a healthy tension when we think about God's presence. And it's the tension between God's transcendence and God's Imminence. So what do these words mean? Transcendence. This is really where we began this sermon. 
with the meditation of the adoration of the Lamb, the, the picture of just the enormity of who Jesus is, his power, his majesty, his otherness. There's a sense in which we become aware of just how holy, just how righteous, just how different God is from us. His cosmic power, his purposes, the way that he's orchestrating this in his great story through all of creation. How do we respond to that? Just to adore, to bow, to worship. And there's a precedence that we see in the Bible when people are overwhelmed by God's transcendence. In Exodus at Mount Sinai, it says the Israelites were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. In Isaiah, it says that when he sees God's throne, he says, woe is me for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Just this moment of reverence and awe, understanding just how holy God is in comparison. And in Revelation, when John saw Christ in his vision, it says he fell at his feet as though dead. And so when we come to worship, perhaps we would do well to remember not to approach casually or without care. There is a weight, there is a gravity to what we do here on Sundays. Not that it must be just serious and dour all the time, but that we recognize the significance of what is going on when we are invited into God's presence by the Holy Spirit. And yet, when we talk about the presence of God, we can't escape the fact that he also draws close. This is God's imminence. That while the image of Christ enthroned on high caused John to fall on his face as though he was dead, the God of the Bible is also the one who stoops, the one who wants to be near to us, the one who cares deeply about the smallest detail of our lives, who knows the number of hairs on your head. And God's presence became so imminent, so close that he took on a human body, that he ate, he drank, he slept, he laughed with friends and grieved with loved ones. He died and was risen. And furthermore, God's presence now dwells within us by the Holy Spirit. Corinthians says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God takes his residence not in a physical building or in a temple, but now within each of us by his Holy Spirit. His closeness is as close as that. The word for this sermon was almost worship is intimacy because that's how close Jesus wants to be with us just as he is ruling from his throne on high in heaven. So there's this tension that we experience as we approach God in worship. There's a sense in which we are entering the courts of a king and yet he's already deep within us even as we enter. Psalm 2 verse 11 says, rejoice with trembling. It's an interesting tension. And I think the way that we can approach God's presence in worship, I think it saves us from a really major pitfall sometimes that we can get caught in when it comes to worship. God's transcendence and his imminence his otherness and his closeness it means that worship, it really isn't dependent on us feeling like he's there. This is perhaps one of the unfortunate consequences, I think, of 
the contemporary style of worship. We can approach worship thinking that unless we feel something experientially, then we haven't really met with God. And you could argue that this sometimes even enters into something a bit like Gnosticism, that all that matters is just this personal interior experience that you have. Like, did you get the warm fuzzies when you came to sing at church this morning? Did you feel sort of tingly all over? Were you moved to some kind of emotional reaction, whether it be tears or laughter or joy? And don't get me wrong, I firmly believe that God wants to meet us in the fullness of our experience and our emotions and in everything that we can feel, but... But neither do I think it's helpful for us to assume that an encounter with God's spirit, a meeting of his presence, is somehow dependent on those things happening. Our posture is important, but God's desire to be present and inhabit our praise and worship is not, is not dependent on how we individually feel about it. In his transcendence and in his power, God moves how he wills. God does what he wants to do. It's not reliant on our efforts. And in his imminence, in his closeness, his desire is to draw close, to dwell deeply within us. And so in that sense, guess what? It's, he's already here. We don't have to say any special words, pray any special prayer. We can be confident that God meets us, that he is near before we even realize it. And so that's an incredible relief for us as we enter worship that's good news because it means that when we gather together to worship, you can come as you are. You're safe in the knowledge that God is here and that he desires to be here. Following on from last Sunday, Stephen kind of prayed at the end, something around that we can sometimes be quite coy or apologetic when it comes to worship. And sometimes our skepticism can come from a, perhaps an overcorrection that contemporary worship has made, where it feels like worship is all about this getting excited, like this constant clawing for a mountaintop experience every single Sunday, that God's going to totally change your life this Sunday, come on down, and that he's going to do it week in, week out. And again, the correction that contemporary worship is trying to make is that we recognize the validity of the fact that God's power and his ability to fundamentally change and break in with kingdom power to change people and situations and lives and entire cities or nations, that if he's really here and if he really is, when we really believe who he says he is, why would we want to limit that? All of that is true. And yet, sometimes as well, there's this danger that we can go too far in the other direction, making worship this constant striving towards being able to experience just that mountaintop experience. It can be exhausting. It can be tiring. We can be discouraged that we feel like we have to build ourselves up week in, week out for this transformation to happen. And sometimes it doesn't. Or maybe you turn up on Sunday morning and you feel like you've genuinely had this life-changing experience only for Monday morning to come round and feel like you're stuck back at square one again. And it can just eat away at us a little bit, week by week, breed in a kind of skepticism, a kind of, a kind of apathy or a caution, sometimes even a fear, and it can just fester away sometimes within us, making us wonder if we're really actually encountering God at all. Again, not for one minute do I want to lose the hope that comes with recognizing that God is at work and can and desires to change us and to change things around us. 
yet at the same time recognize that there's also something deeply unhealthy about mustering something up every week. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if you've had this kind of experience. Personally for myself, I, I attended when I was growing up as a teenager, I would go along to places and things like Soul Survivor and, and they, I, you know, things like Soul Survivor absolutely have nothing but good things to say in many ways. You know, uh, it was just a great, and for me as a teenager growing up, being able to go along to something like that and experience worship um, with people my age. But also at the same time, there were these times of worship and ministry and things like that. And it felt time and time again, like everyone else seemed to be happening this experience. And I was there kind of just waiting for it. It wasn't like I wasn't open to it. It wasn't like I wasn't expecting it. And yet sometimes these things just never happened. And I, you, you sometimes question, you sometimes start to ask yourself, is it, is it me? Am I doing something wrong? Is there just something about the way I'm wired? Am I just naturally skeptical and require more evidence before like, I would give myself over to something? Am I just thinking about things too much? And you can tie yourself in knots a little bit. And so there's a question here. How do we resolve this tension? How do we practice a healthy approach to pursuing God's presence that in some ways avoids some of these pitfalls that we can fall into? I actually think we have an advantage from where we are standing in history. As we've talked about, um, the formation of contemporary worship really comes out of a question to some of these, uh, as an answer, sorry, to some of these questions about the pursuit of God's presence in worship. And historical forms of worship have similarly emerged as a response to similar questions. But it seems that when you look at church history, it's often the case that we see the diminishing of one form or one style of worship in order to adopt another one. And sometimes it seems like it can be quite reactive. So in really, again, broad terms, uh, the early church practiced the presence of God very much around the table, meeting in homes, meeting around the Lord's Supper. And in some senses, this tradition carried on very much into the Catholic form of worship, where the entire worship service orientates around the Mass. And then the Protestant Reformation emphasizes the presence of God in his word. In the focus of the worship service is then centered around the word in a moment like this, around the sermon, around the reading of the word, and that we really encounter God's presence in the word. And then... Many years later, evangelical worship forms and begins to emphasize encounter with God's presence in the music and in sung worship. And so we can almost see this pendulum swing, can't we, between kind of one form or another. And some of the biggest fights and debates in Christian history have been around this question, how does the church worship? How does the church gather? How do we practice the presence of God together? And I just wonder if taking almost the benefit of where we stand in history, knowing the course of church history, I think it's clear that we can have a high view of all of these forms of worship. We can have a high view of the table. We can take it seriously. We can let it orientate us around the presence of God when we take the bread and wine, not just as a symbol of remembrance, like I mentally acknowledge that Jesus rose, uh, died and rose again. That word, when we gather around the table and we say, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, 
That word remembrance, remembrance is anamnesis. And it's less about mentally recollecting, and it means something more like, make me present. We can, and I think we do, ought to have a high view of the word, taking seriously the revelation that God has given to us in his word. The ways that it's showing us who he is, the ways that it weaves the stories telling about us and about the world and about what he's doing and the way that the word can renew our minds and transform us into Christ-likeness. There's something even just about the word being read out loud in a gathering like this, as Fiona did, as we, the one who leads us by still waters, the one who just wants us to be with him in his nearness and his closeness. For me, these different forms of worship that we can draw on to focus our attention and invite the presence of God, they're not in competition in my mind. They aren't mutually exclusive. They're part of the rich tapestry of practices that have emerged over the course of church history. And I think that we can only anticipate God's presence among us as we participate in them fully. And really, God's presence is the glue that makes all of this come together, makes it all hold together. All the things that we've been thinking about in this series on worship, we can tell God's story well. We can participate fully with one another. We can create beautiful things and inhabit beautiful places as we worship, but it's all for nothing if we forget that it's all there to orientate us around God's presence. It's all about him It's his power. It's his desire to dwell within us. It's his spirit at work among us, moving us, moving our hearts. If God's presence is missing, then it makes this whole enterprise, this whole Sunday thing, slightly pointless. We might as well just be a social club. The theologian John Risbridger said this about worship. Throughout scripture, true worship involves a response of obedient faith to the word of God and a reverent, joyful encounter with the presence of God. Jesus defines what this means in the New Covenant era when he explains that the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There is therefore no truly Christian worship that does not take seriously the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts and amongst God's people. It is his presence that imparts spiritual life to our hearts. His presence that stirs hunger for Christ in our hearts and his presence that moves our hearts towards holiness so that our worship becomes transformational and not self-indulgent. And that's the question that lingers for me, do we take seriously the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? I wonder for you this morning, is that something to explore honestly and openly? Do I really take seriously the reality, the gravity, the weight of what is happening when I enter into worship? Can I sometimes approach the throne a bit too casually, a bit too flippantly? Maybe with a bit of skepticism. Maybe sometimes this subconscious thing can creep in when we come to worship. It's almost like we're waiting to be convinced. 
And maybe for you today, there is that invitation to look up, to turn toward Christ seated on the highest throne, surrounded by a mighty chorus of worshippers and to just be swept away by the enormity of that. Of you today is maybe approaching worship. Does it feel like this cycle, this constant striving and expectation that each and every week is gonna be another mountaintop experience, another transformational moment? And so you only go into this cycle of just up and down, up and down, week in, week out, and it just becomes exhausting. You can maybe be left spiritually depleted. And perhaps for you today, you just need to hear the invitation of Jesus to enjoy the closeness and nearness of him, to rest, to feel carried by him, to feel held by him, to step into his unforced rhythms of grace. Why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, we recognize the fact that you are here. Sometimes it can be hard for us to realize that, to acknowledge that even to ourselves, but it is a reality. You promise to be present with us by your spirit, that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there. And so Jesus, would you just come and have your dwelling among us? We're sorry for all the ways that we can make worship about less than you. Make it about us, make it about our response, make it about all these emotions we feel we have to have. When you just want to invite us to be close. Jesus would, uh, that image of who you are, just that transcendent God seated high on the throne, would that be something that is as real to us as those people in the Bible who just felt like they could do nothing else but fall in their face? Jesus, would you be real to us in, in your closeness, to be intimate with you? in the knowledge that we are safe in your hands. God, we just want to be enchanted by your presence. We want to be changed by your presence. Would you come and have your way among us now as we worship? In your name, amen.